Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of Mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Hello and welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad is joined by Gretchen Rubin, a New York Times bestselling author and podcast host. Her past works have explored everything from the life and times of Winston Churchill to how decluttering your life can help lead to a calm mind. In this interview, Chad sits down with Gretchen to discuss her most recent book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, and they also discuss her writing process and what you can learn from two of history's most influential leaders. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Mission Daily. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen, thanks for taking the time. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Likewise. So you're out in New York today. Do you spend most of your time in New York, half time, full time? What's it like? You know, it really depends. When I have a book coming out, then I'm traveling a ton. I do a lot of speaking, and so there's certain periods where speakers are more in demand. Um, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, so I spend a couple of weeks um, in my hometown every year. But other than that, I'm, I'm basically in New York City, you know, not too far from my apartment. I'm kind of a homebody whenever I can be. I love it. So I think the best writers have to be homebodies, right? How else are you going to get that uh, work done? So your new book is out. It's called Outer Order, Inner Calm. Yeah. And how could you tell us a little bit about it and how long the writing process took and yeah, just kind of like what that was like for you? Well, Outer Order, Inner Calm is something that I've been interested in ever since I wrote The Happiness Project and also Happier at Home, which is all about kind of home. So there's a lot about possessions and environment. I've just been really interested that for most people, not everybody, but for most people, outer order contributes to a sense of inner calm and, and even more than calm, a sense of energy and kind of focus and optimism and sort of, and a friend of mine said, I finally cleaned my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. Um, and I knew exactly <laughs> what that felt like. And that just interested me because I was like, we can all agree that something like a crowded coat closet is just a trivial thing. And yet over and over people were saying that getting control over the stuff of their life made them feel more in control of their life generally. So I wanted to really focus in on that and, and kind of explore why that might be. And then also, how do you create outer order? How do you create it? And then how do you maintain it? Because of course, we've all had the experience of like, you do some big purge and organization, and then a week later, you're like right back where you started. Um, sure. But I wanted to write kind of a fun, lively psych up book. So this is a very, it's a book that you can read through very quickly and kind of get ideas because it's meant to feel very light and feel very accessible, very uncluttered. Yeah, I love it. And I think it's a tendency for all of us where we acquire things, we buy things, and the old cliche rings true that the things we own end up owning us. But I think we can push back. And that's what I see your book as kind of a call to action to do. And have you studied feng shui or probably not pronouncing it right? Or what were the kind of origins of this? Just your direct experience in your own life? Or yeah, what would you say they were? It's just something that I observed in myself and that I observed in all the people around me. And, you know, one of the things about me is that there are many experts who are like, this is the one way to do it. I have the right way, do it my way. Whether that's like, if you haven't worn it in the last year, get rid of it or, you know, dump everything in the middle of the floor and, you know, uh, spark joy or we all have to be minimal or whatever that is. And my own view is that there is no one right way. 
there is no magic one size fits all solution. People are different. Some people are simplicity lovers like me. Some are abundance lovers. Some people want to do like a huge, you know, marathon cleaning or an organizing in one weekend. And other people want to work on one shelf for five minutes every day. You know, there is no run right way. So I kind of try to point out all the different approaches and habits that you might try so that we can all pick and choose the things that work for us because, because people are just are really different in what kind of environments they prefer and how they like to get there. But mo for most of us though, we don't want stuff that we don't use or we don't need or we don't love or we don't even recognize. You're like, I don't even know what that cord is for. Like, can I get rid of it? I don't know. Maybe it's important, maybe not. You know, deal with it because getting that stuff out of the way tends to make people feel better because it's just weighing them down. Definitely. So for anybody out there that's listening that thinks, okay, that sounds great. How do I get started today? Are there a couple ideas that you would uh, provide to them or what would you say? Well, one thing that so many people have told me works for them is the one minute rule, which is anything that you can do in less than a minute, do without delay. So if you can hang up your coat, if you can skim a letter and toss it, if you can carry a dirty mug into the kitchen and put it in the sink or even better in the dishwasher, anything you can do without delay, go ahead and do it. And this sounds, this is something where you don't have to take any time, energy or money or effort really. You just do it as part of your ordinary day. But it's amazing how without too much time going by, you really start to see that scum of clutter on the surface of life diminish because things just... Because a lot of times what you're overwhelmed by is not like big tasks. It's just, a, it's just a huge amount of little tasks that makes us feel weighed down. So the one minute rule is a great thing. Another thing that really helps people is to ask, do I need it? Do I use it? Do I love it? Because sometimes we have things that we love that we don't need or use. And sometimes we have something we use that we don't really love. And sometimes we just need something. And it's like, okay, I haven't needed this for five years, but I think, I think there's going to come a day where I'm like, I need a set of binoculars. And so I'm going to keep it because I think I need it. But if you don't need it, use it or love it, it's like, why do you have it? And one thing that some people use is they do a virtual move. You think to yourself, well, if I were moving, would I, would I bother to move this old fax machine? I haven't used it in two years. Seems like maybe you need to have a fax machine. Well, maybe you don't need to have a fax machine. And if you think, would I move it to another place? And you're like, yeah, I wouldn't move it. Then it's like, why do you have it now? I love that thought experiment. That's one of the best things about moving, right? Yes. Uh, no, yeah, many great. people say that, that moving is a great way to clear clutter because you just, it's so clarifying. Yeah. Definitely. So Gretchen, you're the author, is it 10 books now? I think nine. And then nine there's books? a couple that haven't been published. So I don't know if I get credit for that or not. <laughs> yeah. let's. I mean, let's count them. Let's do it. Baker's let's, count, let's count them. Yeah. Uh, so Gretchen, from the outside, you're you know, getting to work and live pretty much like uh, the dream life of many creatives. And that's something that is hard won. It's very easy to look and take a glance on the outside and say, that's nice for them. But the reality is there are years of struggle and trials that go into doing work like this. Could you take us back to kind of the early genesis of your career when you were getting started and maybe some of the first hurdles you faced where you thought, okay, this is impossible. <laughs> and then maybe you kept going, maybe you took some time off. Could you take us back to the early days maybe? Well, I got the idea that I wanted to be a writer when I was, I had started my career in law and I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court when I got the idea that led me to decide to be a writer. And one thing that I often do, even now, I just went through this with the subject of color, I will become very interested in a subject, very mm -hmm. uh, like 
extremely interested in a subject and I'll do a huge amount of research and note taking on it. And this is something that's happened to me during my whole life. And so while I was clerking, I was out at my lunch hour and walking around and I looked up at the Capitol Dome and I thought, well, what is this? This is just like a thought experiment for me. I was like, what am I interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? And I thought power, money, fame, sex. And it was like power, money, fame, sex. This idea, these ideas seem very linked to me and I became extremely preoccupied with researching power, money, fame, sex. I was doing research and taking notes. And I mean, just in all my free time. And finally it dawned on me, this is the kind of thing somebody would do if, if she were gonna write a book. And I could write a book. Maybe I should write a book like this. And my sister who's younger than I am and she's the co-host of the Happier with Gretchen podcast, she had already become a professional writer. Even though she was younger than I am, she'd already become a professional writer. So I did have the example of someone very close to me who was writing. And I thought about it and you know, I had this legal career, but at a certain point I thought, you know, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And I knew that I was at the point in my career where I was like, this is the time to take the risk. I was afraid if I took another major legal job that I might never I would be too invested in that. I was like, my husband and I were moving from DC back to New York, which is the publishing capital. So that was good. And I'm like, this is the time to try. I need to try. I literally went to the bookstore and got a book called something like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal and follow the directions. It's the best, best place to start, right? Yeah. 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 Find the how-to guides. When your sister became a professional writer, was that like a paradigm shift for you? Or did that, what did that do in terms of opening up your view of what was possible? Well, you know, I'd always been a huge reader and writer, so I don't think it was like a, such a revelation to me. I think for me, what the real shift was, was seeing where I could fit in as a writer. Because if I look back at my everything I did, I always did everything that a person would do to prepare themselves to be a writer. I, I wrote papers all the time instead of taking exams. I majored in English. I always took assignments. I wrote a novel as a requirement in law school. Like I was always figuring out kind of how to do more writing. But right. I really was thinking like, you either write novels or poems or plays, or you're a journalist, or you're an academic researcher. And I didn't want to do any of those things. And I really didn't read much nonfiction, and I didn't, I didn't, people didn't study nonfiction the way that they do now. And so it really wasn't until I had an idea, Power, Money, Fame, Sex, where I was like, this could be a book. I could write this book. This is the kind of book that I would write. And then I could see myself as a writer, because before that I was like, well, I don't want to do any of these things. So I don't understand like what, like there's no place for me really. Even I hadn't even consciously thought that through, but I think that was what was stopping me. I just, I didn't know what I would write. So how was writing and researching Power, Money, Fame, Sex, and maybe the aftermath of that book? Do you feel like that was valuable for you as a person? Because I feel like those are topics that if you don't personally take the time to explore them, and examine them in your own life, they can kind of come to rule it. Did you feel like you were able to get an edge on some, uh, yeah, some pretty tricky topics by researching and writing about them? Or yeah, what was that like? Oh my gosh, what if every book that I write, I think, you know, it will never be this good again. I will never write a book that is as interesting <laughs> as this book. You know, just like, just, I just have to resign myself that it's all downhill from here. And then I pick another book and I'm like, no, this is the most interesting, fascinating <laughs> book that I've ever had. I, once again, I am like, like completely obsessed with my subject. Uh, that was an amazing book to read. And the funny thing is, is that it was actually excellent preparation for writing The Happiness Project because it's like the, it's like another aspect of human nature. So in happiness, I was looking at certain things, but having written, 
about power, money, fame, sex, that really informed my understanding. A lot of the groundwork was things that I was thinking about for that book. That book was interesting because it's like a dark guide. There is mm -hmm. this whole tradition of like guides where you're like, it's like somebody said to me, is this serious or is this a joke? And I'm like, it's serious and it's a joke. Like it's very kind of sardonic. And so that was very, that was fun for me to play with the form. I often get very interested in novel structures. Sure. What I've learned is that readers are not that interested in novel structures. So now <laughs> I really try to hew much more closely to, to traditional narrative because I find that's what people really prefer, how they prefer to read, at least my work. But yeah, no, it was very instructive for me to think through it. And it helped me just like understand my own experience much better. How do you as a writer view that push and pull between the fact that traditional narrative structures tend to do well versus pushing the genre and pushing the bounds of narrative structures and inventing new ones. That seems like a, a constant struggle for many creatives. How do you view that? Like, is there a, are there any rules that you set for yourself? Like when in doubt, go back to the traditional structure, or do you think it's really important for creatives to try new things constantly? Well, I'm very fortunate because I have a blog that I've had since 2008, and that lets me be that like lets me play with a lot of things if I want to. Like, if I want to make a funny list, or I want to write a manifesto, or I want to, you know, I can experiment with it in that way and kind of have my fun with it and 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 engage with it. I mean, in the end, I think it's all about like communicating an idea. How do you most effectively communicate an idea? And it's interesting because now that I have a podcast, so I have I have the regular podcast episode that is everyone every week, and that's like with my sister, and that's the happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. But then every Monday, I do like a two minute story where I just tell a story, and frankly, it's kind of a didactic story. It's like a little, like a little, it's got a little point to it, which is something that I love. I always really like didactic things. And it's been interesting for me because I'm like certain things fit in that form, but mm -hmm. and that is the right form for it. It doesn't work otherwise. And so partly it's how do you find the form that will most clearly express what it is that you're trying to express to others? And if something is distracting them or slowing them down, then it's not working well. And so the question it. is, what is the right, everything has its right form what is the right form for this? And for a complex idea, like with something like happiness, what is happiness? How do you live a happier life? It really, I got to do that in straight narrative because I need to explain my ideas in a straightforward way. If I start like pulling it into boxes and stuff, it could be fun, but it, it's not going to give me the depth of analysis that I need. Now, that being said, I think it can still be clear and accessible. I think one thing that law school really focused me on was clarity because there's right. a lot of legal writing that is not clear. You really have to wade your way through it. This is true of a lot of academic writing as well. And so I'm always just like, oh my gosh, can I be clear, clear, clear? So structure is always in this, in this service of clarity for me. That's great advice. And you mentioned the two minute stories that you do each week are a bit didactic. How do you go about writing, whether they're parables or stories or lessons in a way that doesn't offend the reader? I, I know it's impossible not to offend everyone, but at the same time, didactic creative projects tend to have like a tricky balance between, am I teaching too much? Am I, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you go about that? And how do you not offend your audience? Well, I don't really worry about offending them. I more worry about like, does it seem too sentimental? Frankly, I often like, I'm so overwhelmed with my own emotion that I'm like choking up. So often I have to do something like two or three times because I'm like, oh my gosh, the Statue of Liberty. Just thinking about <laughs> it makes me weepy. You know what I mean? So 
But Churchill says, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. So I always remember that. Yeah, so I don't worry about offending. I more worry about like being thoughtful without being maudlin. Okay, yeah, no, that, that's great. And speaking of Churchill, so I have my brandy on the table. It's the morning, a cigar, a robe. And you wrote a book on 40 ways to look at Winston Churchill. What were some of the big takeaways from his life and your study of him that you remember? You mentioned one. Are there any others? Oh, so many. Oh, my gosh. I mean, for me personally, I would have to say that I learned so much from Churchill as a writer. I mean, one of the one of the downsides or one of the risks of writing about Churchill is that he himself is such an amazing writer and speaker that anything that you do kind of pales in comparison. So, the, you know what I mean? Like anytime like I have an excerpt from his speech, I'm like, well, now everything I write looks so like ugh. Because there's just no one, no one is good. And so I learned a tremendous amount from him also about pacing and uh, kind of use of vocabulary because no one was like more fancy pants with his language than Churchill when he felt like it. Like he got out all the long, long words, but when he really wanted to hammer it home, he took it down to one syllable. Give us the tools and we shall finish the job. You know, and he really, really knew how to drive home a message and how to really communicate in the most concrete way. So that was, for me personally, was something. And then just his, his vision, his vision of his life, his vision of England, his mm. vision of the United Kingdom, of the British Empire. Now, some of these things, and, and my, my, my biography looks at this, which is there are many negative versions of Churchill, you know, which I write about and explore because the book is really about the nature of biography and how a biographer can lead you to all kinds of conclusions about the subject. By being absolutely factually accurate, you, you still are being played. Mm. And a biographer can't help but do that. It's just, it's just part of the, the process of biography. So the book is also about the nature of biography. And then I write about at the end how, given everything that I had learned, where do I stand? What do I conclude about Churchill? And of course, I'm like a tremendous admirer of Churchill. But I also explain why someone might absolutely disagree with that conclusion. And in fact, I had the funny, I had the funny experience after that book came out where people would write me these angry emails explaining like everything that was wrong about Churchill. And I'm like, but you, but that was in my book. Like you're quoting from my book. Yes, I know that. I put that in there. It's kind of funny. Yeah. So with Churchill's life, he went, if I remember correctly, he went through a pretty long and dark night of the soul when he was trying to convince those in parliament and everyone in England that Germany was a threat and they were basically uh, amassing military power because they wanted to take over Europe. And what was that part of Churchill's life? What do you think that was like for him? And from your study of it, how do we go about trying to convince others of something that we know to be true that is, is really important? What are some strategies there? Because I feel like that's a battle that we all face. We have visions, we have strong opinions, and we have to convince others that this future that we see might happen, or maybe we should be worried about it. Any strategies you found from Churchill that we can apply? Well, one thing about Churchill is he could have done a better job of creating allies along the way. So that's one thing that's important, which is if you want to convince people, you know, you want them to be aligned with you. Sure. One thing about Churchill that's really interesting, and it's, it's kind of hard to grasp is he held every important position, I think, except Chancellor of the Exchequer. He did everything. He experienced everything. He'd been part of everything. And I think there is an authority that comes from you just knowing what you're talking about. 
I, there's no important. I mean, he knew Coco Chanel. I mean, there was like, <laughs> you're like, who is who did not hang out with Winston Churchill? Now, it was easier because it was a smaller country in a kind of smaller time. But it is, I think that's one thing is that the more experience that you have and the more that you've been part of things, the more people are like, well, this person, this person knows what they're doing. They're just not, they're not waltzing in from the outside and telling me my business. This is a person who served in the military many times, you know, in many, in many ways. And so I think that that gives you a, a kind of authority, certainly that a lot of us can think about, which is like, Wise how words. well do you know what you're talking about? Yeah. So moving on to one of your next books that I wanted to touch on a little bit is uh, 40 Ways to Look at JFK. So JFK is another fascinating icon in American life and in the world's history. When you were studying JFK, there's obviously a bunch of, you know, more negative stories about him. What were some of the most positive stories that you took away or that you feel like not enough people know about him, his family, or his life? You know, JFK is a tremendous mystery. That's why I was drawn to him as a subject. And I cannot even remember who said it, which is shocking. And I'm not sure I'm going to get the words right. But some great philosopher said, he is greatest who is greatest in men's thoughts. And to me, the thing about Kennedy that's the most admirable is that he stood for excellence in the public imagination. Now, whether he himself lived up to that standard is a completely different question. But at that time, and in our memory, he stands for a standard of excellence. That is not so easy to do. And it is important to have this standard of excellence. And there is something about Kennedy where you feel that you are in touch with something very important that he somehow was able to convey and embody. And how he was able to do that is much studied and also somewhat mysterious and a function of time, but also the mystery of personality and character. It was a combination of many things. The difference between the reality and the image is fascinating. That's one of the reasons people are most interested in him and in Jacqueline Kennedy. But that's what I thought was most powerful is that he just does he just stands for a kind of for, for a kind of excellence and a sure. kind of patriotism too. When you're going about leading or doing any of the things that JFK was and Churchill for that matter as well, you're bound to start to build up enemies. You alluded to it earlier when we were talking about Churchill. But how do we go about forming allies, leading, and doing great things and making as few enemies as possible? Because ultimately, you know, JFK's assassination isn't something that we want to, <laughs> you know, that's not the goal. We want to avoid that as, uh, as leaders and people who change things. Any strategies there? I mean, to compare yourself to Churchill or Kennedy is a little bit unrealistic because what a person faces as a president is a little bit different what you place when you're not a president. But like, what are the lessons from them? I mean, I think part of it is just to be able to talk, to communicate effectively with people who disagree with you, which they did, each of them, with various degrees of success at various various times in their career. Of course, sometimes you want to have a well-placed enemy. You know, a good enemy can be good, depending on who the enemy is and what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, You don't want to be, there's people that you don't want to be allies with or friends with for your own reasons or for, for a variety of reasons. But I think always respecting the person on the other, the, you know, that the other person is a person helps, you know, to be polite. When Churchill wrote the letter declaring war on Japan, he wrote this incredibly flowery, 
you know, now that it has come to the attention of his majesty's government, you know, like blah, 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 blah. And I mean, it really is just this flourish of etiquette. And somebody said to him like, wow, man, you really like, you know, pulled out your etiquette book to declare war. And he said, when you are going to kill a man, it costs you nothing to be polite. So again, it's like, you know, you can still be behave with dignity and respect toward others, even when you're like really disagreeing with them. And there's, there's much to admire about the ability to maintain your composure and your own dignity, I think. Well said. Yeah. Dignity never goes out of style. So when you're going about writing and doing your creative work, what does your routine look like? And do you ever, and how often I should say, do you shake things up and try a new routine? Well, I'm a person who loves routine. If I could live the life of a Benedictine monk, I would in a flash. That's my idea of like heaven. So when I am in my routine, which I love, I get up at six, I walk my dog, I come back to my desk, I do email, which I know a lot of experts say don't do email, especially if you're a morning person because it's like low value work, but I can't focus on anything more important until I deal with my email, social media, all that stuff. Then I like see my family off, I go for a walk in Central Park, I eat breakfast, and then I kind of start back again at my desk. And it always varies depending on where I am in a book cycle because I have different kinds of tasks. So when I have a book that's just about to come out, for instance, I would be doing a lot of like answering Q&As or looking over materials or writing you know, short things, jacket copy, stuff like that. Mm. And then when I'm on book tour, of course, I'm just traveling all the time or doing interviews. But when I'm in a writing mode, which is my favorite, I would spend, I aim to spend at least three hours writing. Three hours doesn't sound like a lot until you're actually writing and then you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of writing. I will often go, there's a little library, a, a block from my house called the New York Society Library. And I will often go there. I love working in a library I have ever since I was little. I just find it a, real, a place that really helps me to focus. And then if I want a break, I just like wander around and, and like check out books, um, yeah. which I also find kind of, kind of creatively stimulating. And then I will also do a ton of reading and note taking. This is a huge part of what I do. So I'll read a book and mark it like with post-it notes and things. And then I go back and kind of process my notes. That can be quite time consuming, but that's, kind, that's how I sift through my, what I've learned and what I think and have new ideas is kind of like by going through the stuff that I've read. And because my life isn't so set, I can't say, oh, every day from 10 to one, I'm going to write. I would love to do that, but I can't because it, it sort of every day is different. I have to, I have my podcast, so I have to prepare for the podcast. I have to record the podcast. I kind of have to re-envision the pieces every day, but I work every day. I work every day. My birthday, Christmas, I'm on vacation. It's just like I, I work every day. So yes. I, that yeah. helps me stay in it. So when you're going about reading, is there any set amount of time you're aiming to read each day? Do you aim to have, you know, one one book a week read or are there any type of like goals there or do you just keep that pretty open and just follow your uh, your interests? I love, any, love, uh... love to read. It's my playground. It's my cubicle. I feel like I never have enough time to read every week. And I feel like I never have, this is the great mystery of my life. I feel like I never have time to read. If people are like, do you read? I'm like, no, I have no time to read. But then every week on Facebook, I post a picture of all the books that I've finished that week. It's called, it's like a hashtag Gretchen Rubin reads. And I post, and I see, I read, I, I've read a lot of books. 
I, so I clearly am reading. And even though I constantly am trying to fight to find more time to read. So I don't put any kind of, um, I don't, and I don't really need any kind of numerical or, you know, I don't aim to do it that way. For me, that would almost take away the fun of it. But I'm a person who gets a lot of reading done. I mean, and I don't know how, because I feel like I have no time to read, but I do, I do do a lot of reading. But then I have like, I love children's literature. So I read children's literature. I love adult literature, fiction. So I read a lot of adult fiction. I read tons of nonfiction. And then if I'm working on a book project, I'll read like work related material too. And so that I consider, I might do that as part of my kind of work day if it's related to my work subject. Whereas if it's not related to my work subject, I would consider it like leisure reading. So that's, that is a one way that I distinguish. Is it like a billable hour kind of book or is it really for fun? <laughs> uh, but cool. I do love to read. So that's, so I always feel like, yeah, that's kind of cheating. What's the best fiction book you, uh, you've read over the last, let's say uh, six months? Well, I love children's literature. Okay, so I love children's literature. If you love children's literature, like a lot of adults do, and they don't talk about it, but we do. I have a list on my site called my 81 favorite works of children's literature and young adult literature. So I read this stuff all the time. I just discovered someone new, Peter Dickinson. I'm like, hey, people, why did no one tell me about Peter Dickinson before? <laughs> I learned about him reading Philip Pullman's new book of essays called Demon Voices. Philip Pullman, of course, wrote the His Dark Materials trilogy, which is a towering Amazing. work of, of yeah. uh, young adult literature. I mean, it's of literature at all. Run, don't Can't walk. look at polar bears the same ever again. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yorick Bjornsson, The Iron Bear. Then, so he mentioned this guy, Peter Dickinson, which is weird because I've read everything that Peter Dickinson's wife has read. She's Robin McKinley. She's written a number of books. I have all her books. Love her. Never had heard of Peter Dickinson. So I'm like, oh, well, if he, Philip Pullman likes Peter Dickinson, I'll read a book. And then I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like I've read, so I read Tulku recently, which was an outstanding work of children's literature. I read The Blue Hawk. I read The Rope Maker. I am going to read everything that Peter Dickinson ever wrote, which he's written a lot. He's also written adult fiction. I'm so excited because it's just, I follow this really, this is like if you were like, oh, I love 19th century literature and oh, I never heard of Jane Austen. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, where have you been? I'm like, where, how have I never heard of Peter Dickinson? I think it's he's British. Sometimes British authors don't come over to the United States. It's like a lot of Americans don't know about Enid Blyton, under the radar. Yeah. who of course yes. is gigantic in the UK. But so anyway, so this is super exciting for me. So Tolku, Run, Don't Walk, Tolku. if you like okay. it, if you like children's literature. He writes a lot about kind of religion, um, which is something that I love, kind of a religion fantasy. And I've read a lot of great adult. I've read Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. Ooh, my, my whole family read. is reading that. That's a good book. Nonfiction. Very exciting. Story of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Great, great business book. So I have to I have to jump in and ask about that. How did Bad Blood change your view of Silicon Valley and venture capital? Or yeah, what were your thoughts after reading the book? Well, the thing to me that's interesting is how in hindsight, it seems perfectly obvious. And you wonder how it could have gone on as long as it did. And that's also very much like uh, the Bernie Madoff, where you're like, it's so many people were aware. I mean, it just seemed like, how did this go on for so long? And that's what's interesting to me is how anybody, you can take your shot, you know, you can take your shot at fraud and see if you get away with it, you know, but you're like, well, how did this go on for years? So that was what was interesting to me. It's like, how did people not realize that the emperor had no clothes? Same here, especially in a place like Silicon Valley, where there are so many companies that have pretty great work-life balance structures, they have positive cultures. It just seems wild that that type of culture could persist for so long. And well, I don't I think, think it has anything to do with their work-life balance though. Why do you think that? Why do you think that would reveal a fraud? 
Oh, no, I'm just, uh, so the complete thought was with so many different companies that have such great cultures, it seems very odd that a culture that was that negative and aggressive could persist for that long. So yeah, just basically in align with what you said. It's the money. Yeah, I, I think there's the valuation. definitely- The valuation, right? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a little bit of that, but I'm just, I'm pretty shocked that there weren't more people inside that were holding equity that weren't asking harder questions or- asking to see the technology. That's, uh, it's definitely uh, astonishing. Yeah. But um, I mean, they were anyways, siloed. So I think it made it hard for them sometimes to know. They might've thought, well, maybe that other team knows. But then at a certain point, it's like, it's clearly like- Pretty obvious that nobody- Yes, <laughs> exactly, right? Yes. Anyways, no, I, excellent I book. I often think about that with Enron too, because it's because trained as a lawyer, I think, well, if I had been on the Enron team, if I'd been a lawyer and all the other lawyers and all the other accountants and all the professional advisors were like, this is fine. Would I have been the one to be like, wait, this is totally not fine. This is not get told completely against all law and accounting rules. We can't do this. I mean, would I have held up my hand? And I remember reading the Sherry Watkins memo that, that she sent anonymously to Ken Lay. And in it, she lays out all this stuff, which I can't understand. I don't have nearly the financial sophistication to understand what she was objecting to. But then she had one line where she said, the standard is would the average investor invest differently were these facts disclosed? If so, you best disclose. And I'm like, here's a person who knows right from wrong. This is the test. And that's a test that I could understand. Do we need to disclose this? Yes, we do. Have we disclosed it? No, we have not. Okay, well, we're in a pickle. And so that was a big relief to me. And That's so, such a yeah. good question for every CEO and every small business owner to keep at the forefront of their, yeah, their practices, for sure. Yeah, if people knew what we were up to, what would they think? It's like, well, if they knew that we were sending all our lab reports to it, you know, if, <laughs> if, some, if another lab was doing all of our analysis, what would they think of that? They wouldn't be that enthusiastic about that, actually. No, not, not at all. So- Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us and being very generous with your time. If there is one thing that you could leave our audience with, one thought, one question, one big idea, what would that be? The one thing that I've really come to believe in all my study of happiness and good habits and human nature is that we can build a happy life only on the foundation of what is true about ourselves, our own interests, our own values, our own temperament, and that when we try to shape our lives according to what other people expect or what we, what we wish were true about ourselves or what we assume is true about everybody, but that actually isn't true about everybody, then it's hard. But when the more we think about, well, what's true for me and how can I build my life to reflect what's true for me, then it's a lot easier to build that happier life. Wise words. Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us. And for everybody that's listening, Outer Order, Inner Calm is out now. And Gretchen, where's the best place for people to find you online? Uh, if you go to GretchenRubin.com, that's my website. And that's kind of the hub of everything. And you can get all kinds of discussion guides and free resources. And I write constantly about my adventures and happiness and good habits in human nature. I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin once a week where I talk about how to be happier um, with my sister, who Elizabeth Kraft, who's a big TV writer and producer living in LA. She also is a professional writer. And I'm all over social media at, under Gretchen Rubin. And I love to connect with readers and listeners and viewers. So if anybody has insights, observations, questions, whatever, hit me up because I love, um, I love to engage with people. Awesome. Thanks so much. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning.
Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.